Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Been a while now, hasn't it? Well, I am back from my vacation, so to speak. Well, I can treat it as a vacation because mostly it was technical difficulties and culture shock and whatnot. Well, as those of you who follow me on social media know already, I am in North America. Yay, I'll be here until the 6th of April, but that's what I got to talk to you about first. So, on the 4th of February, uh, I arrived in LA, which is funny, because on the way here, nice people in Poland, of all places, because I flew with Lot Airlines through Warsaw, and yeah, apparently if you're from Europe and you fly through there, then you have to do a mandatory interview to get to the United States. The thing is, apparently I was the only one who actually did what the law required of me, and when I went there, they picked me for extra security screening. And then, then probably one of the worst things that has ever happened to me in life happened, as they literally unscrewed my microphone, disassembled it completely, and then, like, put it back together normally, or so they thought. They left a bunch of scratches on it, and I really had to, like, open it up myself afterwards and deal with the issues, because, uh You know what? I've understood that for podcasters, if someone just starts messing out with your microphone, it's kind of like, kind of like, I don't know, someone else cheating you and your wife or something. Feels really bad. But that was one of the problems. Basically, yeah, I was in LA. I met Scott and Forest from Astonishing Legends. I met Danielle Bolelli, spent a week there, then moved up to Spokane, Washington, where I was for a while. Uh, well, don't want to go into details here, but uh, some interesting things happened in my life. So after a bit, I'm here with some pals in Vancouver. I'm with Leon and Rachel, and these nice Canadian people are helping me out. I am living in their couch until, you know, I can get back home, which is going to happen in early April. But I'll go to Seattle on the 6th of April. I'm going to meet Stephen Kaminsky from Baked in the Wake podcast there. He visited me in Spokane, too. It was really fun. And if you want to meet me in Seattle, you're seeing me from there or somewhere on the way there, uh, then, yeah, we can arrange something if you want to go, but podcast is back, and despite my difficulties in life, because, oh, wow, <laughs> kind of was, was uh, stunned, because I'm sort of left on the other side of the planet with uh, not much in the way of money. Well, in Canada right now, in Vancouver, by the way, Canada is different from the United States a lot. I'm going to make an episode probably when I get back home in Riga about my whole experience in this area. 
because I want to talk about Russian news because so much has happened since my last episode and I kind of want to focus on that, but you will get an episode just about my experiences. So I'm in Vancouver right now. Oh yeah, if you're listening from Vancouver and I haven't met you because we had another listener guy over to this place, hey, send us an email, message me on Facebook. I know that there's a bunch of you guys out there and I've only met two of you. So if you're in Vancouver, let me know. If you're in Seattle, we're going to be in Seattle in like early April from 6th to 10th when I fly back to Riga, then also let me know. What's more important than that and what mess did I get myself into that really kind of left me uh, a bit stunned and alone and kind of sad? Yeah, more important than that is that in the 1st of June, I fly to Ukraine. My plan is set. I will be flying to Kiev. And from there, I will go eastward. I will try to get as close to Donbass and Luhansk as I possibly can. I'm going to try to work with Ukrainian military forces. I have a friend from Vata TV, whom I've spoken about in this show in previous episodes, but who's going to set me up in Kiev for like two or three months. But my goal is to go to Ukraine and then go around the surrounding post-Soviet countries, including Georgia and Armenia. I'm going to start with Ukraine. That's one of the future parts of the show. I'll be doing my Soviet episodes all the time, but I will also be doing war correspondence, I suppose. I was hired to do that too by people from Latvia, which is nice. So I'll have to go to Donbass and then I'll have to come somehow try to get into Crimea as well. So that's what you should expect from the show in the June, because, well, historical episodes then will take a backdrop. And uh, all the stuff that I'll get, all the studies I get from Ukraine, they're, they're going to be in the show. Because right now, about modern Ukraine, you can get either the Russian side of the study or, you know, some Western person who probably doesn't speak Russian, their kind of study. I want to go and talk to the people. I want to get the real study out. I want to be as close to something as possible. Because, hey, well, if settling down here didn't work out quite as well as I had planned, and, uh, you know, if the universe doesn't want me to form a family just debt and stuff, then, hey, might as well do the awesome thing and make the best episodes of the podcast that I humanly can. But it's all super complex, really, and probably we'll talk about that in my United States Experiences episode sometime in the future. But yeah, we're back. I've had a great time here in North America, because, hey, I'm in Canada now. Wow. For one, I have watched Trailer Park Boys here in Canada, and that's amazing. And and everything's so much bigger, but yeah, I think this is not the episode for this, because... Things have been going down in Russia in multiple ways, and and they have been trying to cut themselves off of the internet. They have had crazy stuff happen, and, and I would like to dedicate this episode to figuring out and giving you some major updates on various developments that have, you know, developed over Russia lately. Uh, first of all, I want to give a shout out to Ellie. You're cool. Uh, she's a nice person who spoke to me on the bus while I was taking the trip to Canada, and then we've been like chatting a bit, and she's been supportive. Good luck with your new job, hope you get it. And to all the other listeners, to Bran and Sam and everyone who's been talking to me, because you guys are really cool, and honestly, at this point, even this episode wouldn't come out without your support. And if you guys want to support me, please, right now, I need your Patreon donations more than ever, and probably, if you if you have some spare change, hey, back to Dan Carlinetta, you know, one dollar is all we ask, so if you have that one, at this point, it would be pretty cool if you could, like, throw me some at my donate button from my webpage, theasternborder.lv, because, yeah, I'm going to be here. Uh, states in Canada are pretty expensive, and, well, <laughs> everything else is going to go to, well, me dealing with the Ukrainian stuff, which is happening in June, and you better get hyped, because I'll take that part very seriously. 
very seriously and bring you the best studies from the ground, the real tales of the people, and I will make sure that you're informed about literally everything that actually is going on in that southern region. But now, wow, this has been a long, long intro. Oh, and also go listen to Bath in the Wake, go listen to people's podcasts, listen to Jordan Harbour's Twilight History, listen to Daniele Valili's stuff, listen to Zender's Reconsider podcast, because, yeah, I'm super happy to meet a lot of podcasters here. But now, no, well, sorry for this extra long intro, sorry for a bit of e-begging, I suppose, but hey, I'm in a pickle, I'm stuck in another continent. So, yeah, this year, in the in general, this whole new thing, I've sort of visited you here, no one. It's gonna turn out quite well. I'm prepared to work harder than ever. So, greetings comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Let's get on with the, I would say, even like scary things that have uh, happened lately. And I'll try to tie them in, I'm gonna try to make a comparison episode, because some matters really do reflect, interestingly, with the Soviet period of things. And I'm gonna start with something at least funny, because by far the most bizarre thing that has happened recently, and this happened in like 16th of March, was when in Minsk, the capital of Belarus, a bucket full of uranium and other radioactive things was found in a trash can in the middle of a living district. Apparently, like, everyone went in shock and everyone was panicking because literally they picked out from trash various rods and other substances, all with radioactive symbols on it, and it was just freaking out. And so far, I have two sources about what happened, and they both are just creepy. Basically, all that we know by piercing stuff together is that an old lady who didn't know what it was just threw it out because she didn't know what those things were for. One of the studies goes that it belonged to her husband who worked in a Soviet facility and and science-related things. And apparently, as the Soviet Union collapsed, he had stolen this stuff from his job because, you know, everyone stole everything back in Soviet era. And when everything collapsed, hey, why not grab something dangerous looking and make money off of it of black market? Look, it might even, you know, glow in the dark a bit. <laughs> that happened. And then, well, after this person had died from cancer, his elderly wife had decided that it might be a cool idea to, you know, clean up after the old man throw his trash out. Which she did. Other option that is also a tale goes about her little granddaughter who had worked in a chemical-like faculty for the local university and then died and, and then, like, stuff was all cleaned out of the house. So it's either one of these two, but in general, yeah, some, some grandmother threw these uranium rods out because she wanted to clean up the mess either after her tragically dead granddaughter or her, well, old husband. I believe the husband theory more personally, but... But this actually has caused a bit of waves of thinking, because if this one apartment held basically enriched uranium in it and other radioactive substances, uh, we don't know which ones, if this could happen after so many years after the Soviet collapse, uh, that means that this might not be the only case where someone is just, you know, keeping dangerous materials in their house just like that, and I would be quite scared to find out what would possibly happen if this should go into the hands of terrorists. But yeah, you know, this again proves my point that back in the day, it didn't matter what your company produced or whatever, you would steal everything. Like, even things that would kill you. Or that, I don't even know how crazy illegal was it to steal uranium from places just bizarre. But then again, this kind of compares to one of the studies that I learned about recently, because people still send me those, so I'm thankful for that. 
And apparently back at the day in Valmiera, one of our northeastern cities in Latvia, in Valmiera there were people who were in Soviet era stealing everything in such a terrible way that they started stealing utterly pointless things. Still better than uranium, yet, you know, pointless. So they had a massive kind of glass factory in Valmiera where they produced optic fibers and, you know, other glass-rated materials. And as the Soviet Union collapsed, it was found that in one of the garages, some dude was stealing glass marbles, little glass beads, just, you know, for no reason. They're literally useless to anything else that is, well, not this glass production, like fibers and such. But if people stole those, then what's the next logical step? Well, obviously, comrades, <laughs> why not uranium by this point? But yeah, craziness can still happen, and hey, well, Cold War might still have a pretty huge impact on our lives. Just as it is now, and uh, kind of weird to say it, but Cold War looks like it's getting pretty heating up lately, and and wow. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to start with the funny thing, because uh, the rest of it uh, probably will not be as pleasant, because let's talk about how Russia, for one wants to try it and cut itself off from the rest of the internet, because don't have many listeners there inside of Russia, but hey, I want to be, like, available to you guys. Next month, the State Duma of Russia, Kosdoma, will vote on the second reading of legislation drafted by Senator Andrei Klishas. Ah, that's a great dude. That would create the isolation of the Russian internet. In mid-February, the bill's first reading passed with support from 334 of Duma's 450 deputies. And this was kind of crazy because they basically want to cut off Russia from the rest of the internet. They uh, think in Russia that by spending insane amounts of money, they could just cut off it from the rest of the world, which means Russian people wouldn't be able to focus on my show or, or just you any other shows. The problem is that, personally, I think that most of this money will be stolen and uh, used to build more yachts or whatever. But right now it's in the second hearing, and they intend to spend about $28 million, American dollars, to build up another firewall of China and then to be more like able to control what people are posting on the internet in Russia these days. I'll be keeping you updated, but... Mr. Klishas and other people just consider this a protection against foul American and other Western interests within Russia, and is on the typical range of screaming very loudly and then, you know, blaming everyone else for it. What this thing will really do, if it is even implemented properly, but because there are two options, either they will do it the right way and it will work, and then, you know, you have a... very closed country scenario, or the most likely presumption is that money for this project will get stolen, and if anything of the similar system will get implemented, then basically people will be able to bypass it super easily via VPNs. Now, the threat here lies is that there have been massive protests by the Russian youth, you know, sane people, who want to protest this because they do want to watch Netflix and YouTube and everything like that without censorship, because these new standards basically mean that all internet service providers in Russia would have to adhere to certain security standards so that, and I quote here, no one but the Russian secret services would access those materials. You know what I'm aiming at here. So, yeah, it's one of the nice ways how those old people still in power in Russia are just, you know, they misunderstand the internet so much that they're actually willing to hurt their own youth by now, just to fight with um, evil Western influences. 
Obviously. Anyhow, okay, small interruption, I literally had to pause the recording of this thing because my, my phone with the Russian news is open while I record because what if something important happens? Okay, so, in Moscow, near Kremlin, on the bridge over the Moscow River, the one where Boris Nemtsov was killed, literally today, scrap metal thieves used a local electronics center called Transformazioni Collector. They basically stole a large piece of cable from, like, the cable building, which was used as Kremlin's official line of communication. They were caught in the process of selling it as they were arrested. Some random people decided to steal some cable for scrap metal, and they did it in Kremlin, and they stole the one that uses the Putin's line. The official Secret Service people then responded that even though this event is dramatic, it did not influence the work of the Secret Services in any way or form. And uh, then I read some comments and they were like, well, you know, it just China shows you the average quality of the Russian Secret Services. If by, you know, cutting their communication cables, that did not influence their work at all. But sadly, there is a bit... Um, sadder size to this because I did mention that it happened near the bridge because this stuff's important the bridge where Boris Nemtsov was killed and they had their cameras there previously and you know that's the most observed with a thing for Americans it's like the square across the street from White House basically that's where the bridge is and they were like panicking and this cut their communications but I will now bring you a quote from Sergei Devyatov the chief officer of the press service and the security services of the FSO Russian Federation. He had the following to say when asked questions about the murder of Boris Nemtsov and why they have no video on this. Quote, The large bridge over the Moscow River is not a zone of responsibility for the presidential guard, therefore there are no FSO cameras there. Even though it was FSO camera cable that connects it, that also relays not only cameras but serves as the communications, that was basically stolen by random bums today in Russia. Now, um, as insane as it must be, uh, the weird part is that I went deeper into the comment section and what the most people were surprised was not only this camera joke, but the fact that, ha, ah, this cable must not have existed in the first place. I mean, it existed on paper, but no one who checked it found it. That's uh, the problem. And secondly, this is kind of Russia in a nutshell. If we can now steal cables just in front of the Red Square, if we can do all those things, then uh, well, this stuff needs to be, be gotten together. I've like looked at the media here in the States, and this is kind of a side note, but, well, I've looked at all this situation, and there's, there's a bit of paranoia going on, like, you know, Russia's being scary. And like I said to my buddy Sam Davis when I chatted to him and say and listen to Inward Empire because like Sam from Boston has been my guide to the United States and like North America in general and has been giving some really valuable advice. So we spoke about this and in this conversation I understood that the United States probably do not need to be afraid of Russia, but they should be if Russia would have like, you know, if they would get their shit together essentially. The problem is that the shit in Russia is currently testing the physical, realistically probable limits over which shit can be spread, instead of, you know, getting it together. So that's the thing. 
One thing that they're also doing currently is that recently there have been like more investigations of ex-ministers of Russia for various criminal dealings. The problem here is that they're all involved in criminal dealings and those who get investigated apparently got on like Putin's and Kremlin's mainstream authorities bad side. The thing is, I dug down a bit and I'll be bringing you this story after the break. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. That's it for now. See you online. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, on March 26th, former Open Government Party, Minister Mikhail Abuzov, uh, yeah, it's kind of weird, weird sounding in English, but still, it's Minister Mikhail Abuzov, has been charged with fraud and forming a criminal group. According to Russia's investigative committee, Abuzov worked with five suspected accomplices from 2011 through 2014 to embezzle 4 billion rubles, more than 62 million American dollars, from two companies based in Novosibirsk Oblast, or Regional Electrical Networks of Novosibirsk Oblast, the district there, and Sibirskaya Energetyskaya Company, or Sibir Electric Company. The suspect allegedly transferred the money they received out of Russia, and uh, Section 3 of the statute under which Abyazov was charged, which penalizes forming criminal groups, allows for prison sentence of up to 20 years. And then I thought about this. Every time someone wrongs Putin or Putin's government, they get to go to prison. And there have been a lot of investigations throughout the years, and if you think about it, I think that up there you can see clear, nice, little kleptocratical things, which, well, you know, sometimes this might go outside, but for the most part, people who make their living by stealing from, you know, average Russian person. And here's a nice timeline. Just some examples that I like to show you so that you understand that this is basically a political dealing with internal enemies. And that this is why people are so loyal to basically Putin and his KGB-like government, because every one of them, every last one of them, could just go to jail for something. So let's start. We have a person called Andrei Vavilov. 
1997, the Russian Attorney General Office started investigating the embezzlement of $231 million allocated to the production of MiG-29 fighter jet. Former Deputy Finance Minister Andrei Vavilov was a witness in this case, which officials closed after three years without ever going to court. In 2006, however, the case was reopened and investigators accused Vavilov of committing fraud and abusing his authority at the Finance Ministry. In July 2008, by which point Vavilov was a senator in the Federation Council, the case was closed for good, with the statute of limitations being expired at this point. Then there was Nikolai Asyenko. Following an audit by Russia's accounts chamber in 2001, officials opened a criminal case against Railways Minister Nikolai Alexenko, who allegedly used state investment program money to buy apartments worth roughly half a million dollars. The next year, Alexenko resigned, and he was soon charged with large-scale embezzlement and abusing his authority. The case was brought to court in October 2003, but Alexenko died in 2005 from cancer before the trial concluded. Yeah, and uh, it's going to go for a while, guys. Yevgeny Adamov. In May 2005, at the request of the United States of America, police in Switzerland arrested Yevgeny Adamov, the former head of Minatom, Russia's atomic energy ministry. He was extradited to Russia later that year while he was charged with fraud and abusing his authority in office. According to investigators, Adamov and his accomplices stole a 62% share of Russian United States company Globe Nuclear Services and Supply, GNSS, and then signed an illegal contract for giving $113 billion Again, $113 billion in debt for previously supplied nuclear materials. In 2008, Adamov was sentenced to five and a half years in prison, but this was later changed to probation! The United States, by the way, wanted Adamov for embezzling $9 million allocated by the United States Energy Department to help Russia improve security at its nuclear facilities. And we go on. Sergei Storchuk. On November 15, 2007, police arrested Deputy Finance Minister, and apparently Deputy Finance Ministers are a large thing back in Russia because a lot of them are in this list. They arrested this guy. According to investigators, during the restructuring of Algeria's debt, Storchak added an extra $43.4 million to the amount of money owned to the company, Sodexim, which bought some of the debt, through the Interregional Investment Bank. After 11 months in jail, Storchak was released on his own recognizance. In late January 2011, the investigation was closed for, quote, lack of criminal evidence, end quote. Throughout the case, Storchak never lost his job. And then we go on. Anatoly Serdyukov. In October 2012, federal officials searched the offices of the military contractor Oborono Service, which is kind of similar to our good old private warfare company Wagner, marking the start of an extensive investigation into the fraudulent sale of Defense Ministry property that cost the state an estimated 5 billion rubles, roughly $77.6 million by today's exchange rate. Within weeks, the scandal led Defense Minister Anatoly Serdyukov's resignation. The key suspect in the case was Yevgeny Vasilyeva, the former head of the Defense Ministry's Property Relations Department. Serdyukov was only a witness in her trial, though. He was charged with criminal negligence in December 2013. That only, you know, led to him to escape prosecution thanks to a presidential amnesty because Putin himself looked down on him and said, No, dude, you're cool. In July 2018, journalists reported that Serdyukov and Vasilyeva had married. What a surprise there. Though the former defense minister refuses to verify the rumors. 
yeah, they pretty much got married, except that they, of course, deny everything to press. And if you thought list was gonna stop here, you haven't listened enough to my show. These are all ex-ministers of Russia, after all. These guys are not just greasy, they're greasy. Oh, wow. Grigory Perumov. On March 15, 2016, federal security agents detained Deputy Culture Minister Grigory Perumov on charges of embezzling funds allocated to the restoration of cultural heritage sites, including the Isoborsk Fortress in Pskov. In October 2017, Perumov was sentenced to 18 months in prison and freed in court for time served, though he was re-imprisoned in January 2019 when a judge increased his sentence to three years. Then we have Alexei Ulyukayev. On November 14, 2016, Economic Development Minister Alexei Ulyukayev was arrested on charges of soliciting and accepting a $2 million bribe. In December 2017, he was convicted and sentenced to eight years in prison and fined 130 million rubles, which is about $2 million. Ulyukayev allegedly demanded the money for facilitating the government's approval of Rosneft's acquisition of a stake in the oil company Bashneft. It was awesome. It was great. And one thing that I want to give to you, this crazy dude's uh, final statement after all the fucking awful shit he did. And someone had translated this into English, so it's pretty long, with some, like, lines in between. But this here closing statement of Mr. Alexey Ulyukayev caused actually quite a stir. I've been like being cheerful and funny this time because that's how I roll with my sad news. But his closing statement was the last of a long list of um, not so nice things. Tone changed a bit. Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the court, Throughout these proceedings and my earlier remarks, I have said constantly that I am not guilty of the charges against me. I categorically reject these charges, and I want to use my last word here to repeat that. The case materials don't contain a shred of evidence showing my involvement in the bribe. Moreover, the evidence unequivocally demonstrates that I have been the target of a monstrous and cruel provocation. During the trial, I have addressed the oddities in the investigation against me. I was truly amazing investigation where the supposed victim, Rosneft CEO Igor Shechin, first transforms into a witness, and then after forfeiting this status becomes a phantom witness. Then he disappears altogether, vanishing somewhere in the vastness between Hantimansinsk and Rome. The man simply dissolves into the air. Like the budgetary effect of Rosneft's purchase of Bashneft, only the smell of self lingers. But who is this phantom witness? Perhaps he's some kind of an expert in foul-smelling deeds. In this case, it wasn't the plaintiff who reported the crime, but that was done by his subordinate, Federal Security Service General Oleg Fekotinsov, then head of Rosneft Security, on the plaintiff's instructions based on the plaintiff's story. The man who organized the sting operation disappears without testifying. Does he exist then in our imaginations? The key materials in this case dissolve into thin air. In another case, the state prosecutor thinks it's okay to treat similar circumstances as a staged bribe, but here he doesn't. One provocation results in a prison sentence, and another one means raise? This case has aroused considerable public interest not unlike a circus. An elderly gladiator at the retirement age defends himself with a cardboard sword and people sit back to watch the whole thing happily, all from their comfy seats. Whether the thumb points up or down will decide his sentence. It was said long ago for whom the bell tolls. I want to say now that the bell could start tolling for any of you.
Now, this is very easy. A bag, a basket, a poorly recorded video, and it's done. Imagine a familiar state official who's worn out his welcome. You invite him for a walk and tell him to hold your briefcase while you tie your shoes. And then the good guys pop out from the bushes. They grab the bureaucrat right there, and it's off to the detention center. It's easy to open the Pandora's box, but it'll be hard to close it. This is a case where the prosecution bases accusations on weight measurements. Oh, this bag's really heavy, what could be inside? This is right out of the pages of Ilf and Petrov's The Golden Calf. Keep on sewing, Shura, keep sewing! This was said when he was sitting on his own, on his own, like, branch from the tree. There couldn't be anything there but money. If the bag is heavy, it means there's money inside. And if the bag is brown, it proves there was a criminal intent and the person who took the bag is criminal. And there's another interesting question that's already been raised. Where did they get the cash that the prosecution laid out on the table in this courtroom? One of the men who is framing me here, Fyokotisov, testified that some private investigator gave him the two million dollars. So it was an investment. In other words, it was an investment to hand over two million dollars just like that for an indefinite period of time and zero interest rate. This is surely an epic tale of effective investing. Somebody ought to tell the Federal Statistics Service to include this investment in its book of records. Unlike similar cases with staged bribes, nobody, of course, is interested in the origins of this money. After all, doesn't it indicate that Rosneft has some kind of a slash fund and works off the books? The charges are absurd, but every absurdity has its own system. And there's a system too. The cornerstones of this absurdity are the elderly and the cruelty and the lawlessness of those trying to frame me. And then, there are the nuts and bolts of this case which I already addressed in my testimony. Qui protest? Whom does it profit? The beneficiary of this monstrous provocation is obvious. All this needs to be investigated, and I have no doubt that sooner or later, all of this will be investigated. I am confident that these criminal acts will be judged accordingly. These provocateurs invested considerable effort and resources into framing an innocent person, entrapping him, and carrying out their reprisal. Instead of mounting an actual inquiry, the investigators and prosecutors rushed to package a dirty case inside a clean indictment. I hope and I believe that the court will rise above this veil of insinuations and lies, and it will defend the law and order that has been trampled here. And I know it won't allow a son to be taken from his old and ailing parents, a father to be taken from his small children. My mother is 85, my father is 86, my son is 12, and my daughter is 7. Life will be hard for them without me. 65 years ago, speaking at a trial where he faced phony charges, Fidel Castro said history would absolve him. I want to repeat these prophetic words. Though the millstones of history grind slowly, they grind relentlessly and fine. I am sure this will be true here as well. End quote. But yeah, the problem is that they're all guilty and that they're all cutthroats who fight for each other and they all, most governmental officials, as it is my job to be suspicious as a journalist towards every possible government. All of this is, you know, just a sign about how this economy works. But before I leave you... I want to talk about something that happened on March 22nd, and this concerns me the most because we're talking about a colleague of mine. I don't know the man personally, he's not my friend, but we share the same profession, and apparently the same idea that truth must be spread, so should information. It's a story about a man in whose place I could easily imagine myself, and thankfully I'm not, which is why I'm worried about things. That's one lost court case which sadly ended with uh, many years in prison. So, the final thing this has happened is probably the kind of scariest thing that's going on throughout this whole show, you see. 
On March 22nd, the North Caucasian District Military Court in Rostov-on-Don sentenced the 19-year-old Pavel Grib to six years in prison. Six years in prison for abetting terrorist activity. According to prosecutors, Grib tried to convince a young woman in Sochi named Tatyana to stage a terrorist attack in her high school graduation ceremony. Officials also accused him of supporting the Ukrainian National Assembly, Ukrainian People's Self-Defense Organization, which is banned in Ukraine as an extremist organization. Grib maintains his innocence, and his lawyer, Marina Dubrovina, argued in court that others had accessed his Skype account, which sent messages to Tatyana about bomb-making. The thing about this is that it sounds more terrible than it is, because, yeah, he's 600 in prison, but what happened here was that someone basically uh, posing as Tatiana, as, you know, this dude in Ukraine who was sitting in various websites, but on the long run, he was basically a Ukrainian blogger, and he was just, you know, blogging about the stuff in Putin land, or, you know, don't call it Russia, because that implies it belongs to the people, but it doesn't, it belongs to Putin and his fucking cronies. Basically, he was lured to Belarus by a lady that pretended to, you know, be interested in him. And when he went there, he was kidnapped, even though he was, like, just 19. And then, uh, then yeah, he was arrested, and now this young dude is sitting in prison for six years. And I'm really glad to be here in North America, like, some part in the United States, some part in Canada. Because I'm not there. Because this shit could have happened to me as well. And this is what I, what's important, like, all the news updates, everything, it's it's getting pretty bad. And this is why I'm gonna focus on more and talk about Stalin, because I have to catch up on Stalin so that you'd see some analogies here that I might be mentioning. But yeah, these are the news from Russia, and I'm back, and there's gonna be one more episode this March, very last dates, mostly about Soviet history. But, you know, we'll get on with this, and we'll crash through this. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness awaits. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.